Hey guys, this is Andrew. My guest today is Ben Rubenstein. Ben has started and sold two software companies for an aggregate value north of $500 million. The first company, Yodel, he started in the mid-2000s, and it sold digital marketing tools to SMBs. The second, OpCity, he started in 2015 with the goal of better matching leads coming off real estate portals like Realtor.com and Zillow with agents that are most likely to close them. I know the two businesses are incredibly different in what they do, but the through line is that neither would have worked had Ben not been highly data-driven in how he implemented optimizations across hiring, training, sales, and support. And the amount of interesting things they figured out at each of these two businesses are super high ROI and absolutely replicable to many other organizations. And of course, throughout the conversation, we observe where his optimizations ultimately hit an upper limit due to just the technology available at the time and what just in the last couple of years has now become possible. As always, the key takeaways from my interviews are on ctlresearch.com, but if you're here to listen to the full audio, I hope you enjoy it. Ben, awesome to have you. Yeah, this is going to be fun. Thanks for having me. Of course. You've had a really, really interesting career across several different successes. Maybe before we get into the individual experiences, which we're going to walk through point by point, what would you say is a unifying theme of what you've been doing your whole life, all the way through from, from Yodel? up until where you are at set point today? Uh, well, I've lo always loved being an entrepreneur and starting businesses and scaling them and growing them quickly. I think a lot of my businesses have been large, scalable sales and support teams. In general, they have been in multiple verticals. And so I've gone deep, but typically to small businesses. And I just think the general theme is scaling fast. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Well, let's go into the first one right off the bat. Yodel is a really interesting business. It was one of the, I think, first B2B-focused internet software businesses. I guess I could describe it that way that was built. And you guys are really pioneers in a lot of ways in that and how you built it. And so maybe you just give a bit of background on what that was, what the core insight was and that led you to found it. And then ultimately, we can get into some of the really creative ways you guys scaled that business. Yeah, so I founded Yodel in 2005 when I was in college. I was 21 at the time. And our thesis was historically small businesses have advertised in the yellow pages, which nobody was using anymore. Mm. And the future will be the, that they will advertise and, and their whole lives will now be online. In those days, we had to convince your local mom and pop small business that people went to the World Wide Web to find local businesses. And now it seems very obvious that somebody would Google a dentist in Philadelphia, but at that time it wasn't. So two co-founders, one of them, actually both I knew since I was very, very young. One of them I went to preschool with, and his father had a number of different car dealerships in Connecticut. And one summer, his dad put him in charge of the internet stuff. And so mm -hmm. he was tasked with making a website, driving people to that website. And this was the early days of Google AdWords, of Overture. And in those days, if you search for a local business, you pretty much just saw national companies come up. Uh, and so our thesis was local businesses should be on the web, need a website, need a web presence, need reputation management in the future. We built review solicitation and their social presence, and they need to drive traffic to their website, just like any large company would. Got it. And uh, obviously, okay, so helpful on what the business was, and then maybe talk about some of the challenges you had in, in scaling it or, or how you guys thought about doing that, what those key learnings were along the way. And then we can get to where you ultimately ended up in terms of what the sales team looked like, how it worked, all that. Our original thesis was we we're going to take down the yellow pages. The yellow pages were this $20 billion market. I remember because, you know, I was in college at the time, they would deliver pallets of yellow pages to our dorm. Nobody would take them and they'd just get rained on and they'd move straight into the dumpster. <laughs> yeah. But these yellow pages, small businesses were paying tens of thousands of dollars a month to be advertising these small businesses. So we said, there's this huge market opportunity. So our original go to market was, well, let's hire some yellow page salespeople. But we realized that those people could not sell online marketing very well. We're used to large books of business and we're not very hungry. So then we tried to scale. I was selling plenty. I was trying to hire other, say, young college grads. And we found that that was a little hard as well because you know, a lot of them didn't want to put in the sales hours and work and felt maybe they were too good for the job. Mm. And so we later found that we need to build a really scalable scripted process where we could bring on people who they may not have had much educational experience or other experience, but they were super hardworking, who were very, very coachable and had a tremendous attitude to fit into our process. Mm. So yeah, it, it, it took us a little while to hone in on our go-to-market, but we built a, a big scalable sales machine. Yeah. And, and ultimately, how big was that organization? The company was about 1,500 people, over 1,000 were on the phone. We made about 80 million calls a year. We called all 20 million small businesses on average four times. 
we had, I guess, a very large army of people using our custom CRM and our scripting that we built. Yeah. And we had tremendous amounts of data on every single one of those calls. Interesting. And I remember also that a lot of these people were not US-based. Is that right? To start, it was all US-based. Okay. To start, we had a number of offices. Our largest was in Austin. We had a 100,000 square foot facility there. Yeah. But what we found was through time, our process was so dialed in and so scripted and so controllable. We had a team in St. Lucia, actually. And we were the only company that I knew of, at least at the time, that brought outbound cold calling to small businesses and collecting credit cards over the phone yeah. to another country. Typically, you see customer support outsourced, but not mm. outbound sales, or maybe even inbound sales, but not outbound sales. Our outbound machine was so dialed in, we were able to bring it to another market. And why do you think others haven't done that? I mean, is it just the risks associated with the credit cards? Is it that there's sort of this assumption that sales is too bespoke to move to a other country? Yeah. So in general, people ask me about outsourcing sales. I would never do that until you've figured out your sales process and it's very, very skilled, hmm. right? Sales is too critical to your business to the top of the funnel to do anything that could hurt conversion. Yeah. And so the way you, you scale a sales team is first, you need some really high sales IQ people to figure out how to pitch your product correctly. Then you need enough data to be able to build a scalable scripted system and to prove out, I do think with people very close to you, that this is scalable. Yeah. And at that point, you could then have other people in other places who might not know our culture earlier as well or have the same sales experience, or even as we were talking earlier, take it to a more automated fashion where you actually don't need people. Yeah. But you can't start there. You need to start with the process of figuring out what to say. And yeah. once what to say and how to say it, that's when you can bring it somewhere else. Okay, got it. And just so I can get a sense, audience can get a sense, what does a scripted playbook look like? How specific are we getting here? How granular is that? Or what does it actually look like? Yeah, so it depends on your sales cycle. And is this a complex enterprise sale? Or in our case, was a very short transactional sale. Mm. We were selling to small businesses a product that was a one call close for the most part, a few hundred dollars a month. And, and in that case, we could be much more scripted, unlike say an enterprise sale, that's a much more complex sale that's going to have many calls. When we say scripted, we mean it was very, very dialed in, meaning yeah. from the exact words were being read on a page in that order. Now that doesn't mean if somebody had a question or we couldn't, you could never deviate from that. But we found, especially in the demo process, where it was much more of us talking than them talking, we wanted everyone to say the exact same thing. I would break the sales process down into four main pieces. The first is the cold call, right? Is, mm. is the peaking interest, especially the beginning of that call would be word for word to set that demo. The next piece is any fact finding that you're doing or needs analysis. Yeah. That is, is fairly scripted as well. It could be a little bit of an outline, but it's very, here are the questions to ask and in the order to ask them. Sure. The next is the demo, which is showing off the product. That was completely scripted. And by the end, we actually were just showing a video. And this is something that could be done by AI or, or, some, or, or some other automated feature. Yeah. And then the final part is the negotiation in, in the pricing. Our pricing was pretty standard. We had a very clear negotiation path. All of our objections were scripted as well. I mean, yeah. by doing 80 million calls a year, you knew what people were going to say before they said it. Yeah. And so we had every objection is scripted in hand. So what we would do, especially if we heard there were newer objections we hadn't heard of, we would look through, let's say example was we got held up on the objection. I need to talk to my partner. I need to talk to my wife. I need to talk mm -hmm. to my husband. And we had transcripts of every single call. We would look through where the word wife a partner or husband was in any of those calls. We would then see which of the calls became a sale and which of the ones didn't become a sale. Of the ones that became a sale, we would see, did somebody say something off script that was very scalable and everybody could say, or was it not scalable at all? Yeah. And then we would take, and we had a separate team that we called the sales lab, that this team we allowed to go off script. This is the team that we would test things in. And we would test a few hypotheses within that sales lab to see if we were able to overcome that objection in a scalable way. And then if it worked, we would take that new rebuttal and bring it out and into the, to the main sales force. That is so interesting. How did you guys actually do that? Did you get like transcripts or, or how does that analysis work tactically? Every single call was transcribed. We're not reading all of them. They're in a giant database. Yeah. And then within that database, you can query it for specific words 
or right. specific yeah. objections that would happen. We then had a, because everybody was so scripted and in this process, you couldn't get tons and tons of new learning if everybody's saying the same thing. Mm. So we needed a separate group that had a higher sales IQ and we allowed them to do different types of testing so that we would constantly learn to then bring it back out to the scalable Salesforce. What year was this when you guys were just scaling up this, this process? We started the company in 2005. We kind of really got to that critical mass of lots and lots of sales fuel by 2010, 11, 12. I'd say the heyday of our sales force was between maybe 2011 and 2016 or so. Got it. And, and was the technology to a point where, I guess I'm surprised to hear you say that you could get a transcription that was actually useful and then put it in a database. It feels relatively advanced for, for that time period of technology. Were there any limitations in how you had to put that together? The transcription services were not perfect, but they definitely existed. They worked well enough. What, yeah. What you could do with those transcriptions was fairly limited mm. outside of just searching through them and then manually reading what you found. Yeah. But I think we wanted to be on the cutting edge of we had more data on very similar phone calls than anybody else ever. Yeah. In a very structured way, right. what could we, how could we use this data to our advantage? And as I was saying, if you're the, the prospect or the customer, any objection you say, anything you said is the first time you've said something, right? right. As a collective, everything we did, it was the millionth time we'd done it. So right. if I do something a million times and you do something one time, I should be better at it. Than you. And that's why we wanted to arm our entire team with all the collective learnings that we were getting. So interesting. And based on what you've seen now come out in the world of ChatGPT, LLMs, et cetera, what improvements do you think you could have made to that process that would have added incremental value? If any, maybe you say, hey, it was already pretty optimized. It was a simple thing to solve. But I'm just curious where your mind goes as you look at this new technology. So especially ChatGPT and other LLMs where you can find information very quickly, I think being able to parse information out of our giant database faster would have made us much more efficient and be able to iterate faster. I think all of our individual salespeople and, and teams could have used that to get information and answers to objections uh, much, much faster as well. Hmm. I think there's even more parts of the demo we could have automated, right? As I was saying, that part of the demo that's in the middle, which is show me the product, there's lots and lots of ways we could have standardized that, that you didn't actually need humans involved. An example that we did back then that would be much more advanced today is when you're making that many phone calls, you're leaving a lot of voicemails. So in the very early days, people actually left the voicemails, right? And what we found is that there is a huge difference between callbacks between reps. Some left better voicemails than others. Mm. And even within the day. So if I left a voicemail at the beginning of the day, I was a little more energetic and had more energy. But when I left a voicemail at the end of the day, I'd say it 50 times, I was tired and the callbacks were worse. And so we tried to take, based on our data, the, the voicemail that got the highest callback rates. Yeah. And then people never had to leave a voicemail again. If you heard a voicemail come up, you hit a button and it was somebody else's voice that we'd rotate and test out to get the best callbacks. Oh, it's so interesting. With today's AI, you could do that, not just voicemails much better, you can do that for many, many pieces of the demo. You can do that for the cold call. You can do that in a lot of other places. Yeah. Okay. I imagine that when you're bringing out all these people, you want to do a lot of monitoring, real-time monitoring and coaching, training. Do you view there being value there? Or did you guys already have a pretty good system set up to jump in and watch for certain keywords and, and provide advice at the right moments? We had a quality team that was fairly nice. manual. They had some automation or pretty fast, but my God, with the tools that are out there now, they'd be so much better. Yeah. So we had them monitor a few things. One, every single call, we had something called a closing script. The closing script was after you made the sale, and you've probably experienced this too, after you bought something online, somebody's reading you, in essence, the high-level terms and conditions of things that you're agreeing to, yeah. and then you say, I agree. So that it's very clear, every single person got the very same expectations at the end of the call after they'd made the sale. That's something that could be much more automated today, and you wouldn't need humans to read, and we would actually have humans listen to all of these calls to make sure somebody said that that could be completely automated today as well. So that could make these roles much more efficient and effective. The next part that we would listen to is within the call, we would do random audits and they had to be random because we didn't have an army of people to listen to every single call. With the technology today and AI, you could have every single word of every single call listened to and flagged. Yeah. And it's not just flags for what you say, it's flags for tone. There's a lot of things you could flag for. And, and finally, we'd have our quality team listen to when there was, say, a customer would come in, would complain and say, hey, I was told this, which wasn't true. Or my sales rep said this and that. We would then go audit and listen to the calls. That could be much more automated. We could have been much more proactive 
than we were. We were very reactive when somebody would complain. We could actually know if something was said that wasn't accurate before yeah. a customer ever complained. And then we can be proactive and call that customer. Totally. And what about on the hiring front as well? Either outreach to candidates or evaluation of candidates, synthesizing resumes for looking for certain keywords or content you want. What comes to mind there? We worked with so many people answers and many others. And so in our world, resumes didn't seem to matter that much, or at least there were some things we couldn't find tons and tons of patterns. There may have been more patterns in our thousands and thousands of people we hired, but ultimately it was more about their personality. And there's much better personality testing out there to understand someone who someone truly is than there was previously. So what we tried to do is give these personality style tests to our current top sales reps to understand who they were mm. and then model that test based on we want more people like them to go find future people. The three attributes that we found were most important by far was coachability, meaning if I taught you something, could you absorb it quickly? and be able to regurgitate that and use that information quickly. Work ethic, are you willing to put more hours in than somebody else? And that will help you in learning. And attitude. I mean, this is a job where our best sales reps, everyone is making 100, 200 calls a day, and our best sales rep are making one sale a day, one, two yeah. sales a day, which means that your best people are failing 99% of the time and most more than that. And so because of that, that's so much rejection. Are you able to take that much rejection and see rejection as, the next step to success instead of just constantly getting beat up. Yeah. And I think we did a fairly good job of screening for those personality traits, but definitely there are better ways to screen to see if people have those traits today. Yeah. Some of these things that have come out, I think you've seen in the talent HR training space have been these synthetic video generators or basically fake call setups that you can go talk to. It's an AI agent that you're speaking to as a salesperson to train yourself. Do you see promise in those or are we still in the uncanny valley of, yeah, this is just not human enough or it's actually helpful? I think there's the interview process and then there's the training and then there's actual having automation do it in, in the real world. Yeah. In terms of the interview process, we did something similar, actually. As I was talking about, everybody was so scripted. You could be the best salesperson in the world. If you can't read or make the somebody else's words come to life, you're not going to be very good at this job. We actually found out some of our best hires were former actors because huh. they could make somebody else's words come to life. So part of our process to make it both more fair and faster in interviewing and recruiting was to give them the script, and then actually have them read it on a video. You could have much more back and forth today than you ever could. And so your interview process could be a lot more efficient because your interviewers are actually not really doing the interviewing too much. They're more watching the videos of people interviewing in these scenarios. Yeah. So I do think interviewing could be significantly faster and more efficient because of these type of technology today. Yeah, I can imagine that. In terms of training, training was a combination of classroom and real life practice. And one of the challenges in real life practice is you are giving very new people leads. And these new people are representing your brand, calling leads, and they don't necessarily know what they're doing yet, right? Because they're so new. Mm. And so I do think better training grounds are not only better for people to get more reps to be able to practice and get better faster, they're better for your brand because you're not actually burning any leads if people are making mistakes. Right. So I think there's a lot of benefits in, on the training side of that. And then to automatically call and make these calls, demo setting, I think could be very interesting. I don't know how well AI could do in the negotiation and the close today. Doesn't mean it's not going to get there. Yeah. But I think there's pieces of it. And so I wouldn't say sales is all or nothing. I think you need to break it up into chunks and you see which one that the AI can do be the best at first. Yeah. I mean, the thing that I think about every time I talk to you, man, there are all these insights that are super interesting and clearly very valuable for you in building that business that were so unintuitive coming into it. You wouldn't have guessed that a lot of these things you guys discovered would be valuable would actually be valuable. But I think that the takeaway for me, at least, is not just sure there's a lot of ways to automate a lot of these types of sales, but using these modern machine learning techniques to extract otherwise unknown insights can be very transformative to how you actually run these organizations. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, it's not about replacing people necessarily. Yeah. It's about enhancing people, making right. them so much better. And maybe you need fewer of them because they're so much more productive. But it's not by an area of will machines replace sales or not. It's what parts of the sales process don't really need humans anymore. And what parts of the sales process really, really need humans? Because there's only so much training you can do in a day. Instead of having to train somebody on every part of the sales process, I can hone in on one part of the sales process that I know that it's really important that they master 
and just do that over and over. I mean, a lot of our training was very 80-20. We knew that almost every, there was maybe five objections that came up 80% of the time. Mm. And so let's just train our salespeople to be amazing at those five objections. Now that huge long tail of objections that happens 20% of the time, that's where you get the manager involved in somebody else. And so they, that's another misconception of sales. Everybody doesn't need to know everything. <laughs> you just need everyone to know the few things that happen most of the time. Yeah. And then all the long tail, you can have fewer people know really. Yeah. Super interesting. Okay. I think we've well covered the Yodel experience. I know we're going to get into a bit of a related <laughs> thing on, on, on the OpCity one. You're your next very successful and very interesting, albeit quite different business. Do you mind giving me the 30 second snapshot of what OpCity is? I mean, being investors, I could have probably described it, but best, I think you do that. <laughs> yeah. So OpCity was vertically focused. So un unlike Yodel, which worked with every type of small business, we just worked with residential real estate agents. Yeah. And we built up a network of 150,000 real estate agents that we did not sell leads to. We actually transferred live consumers who were looking to buy properties. The business was a consumer went to a portal or somewhere online to and express some interest in a home. So let's say you're on realtor.com. You see a house that you really like. You put in your information. We would then call you within four seconds, ask you questions and to understand who you are. And then in real time, match you with someone in our agent network, much like you'd be matched with an Uber driver. Mm. We then tell the consumer, hold on one second. I have the perfect agent for you. We'd call up the agent, explain the situation, and then we'd bridge the call, introduce the two parties, and set up an appointment to go see that property. And then we'd do a number of other things to both help the agent and help the consumer actually finish that transaction. Right. Unlike Yodel, where we would sell leads to people, at OpCity, we would not sell leads. This was completely free for the consumer and agent. And we only were paid when the deal was closed a piece of the agent's commission. All parties were very, very incentivized because nobody made any money until the home was actually sold. Again, the data science, machine learning vein, there were three big elements to that business. I would say the first one was in the matching in what we called real-time dispatch. It was a pretty complex problem to look at all the attributes of the consumer and all the attributes of our entire agent network and both make a match, but a match is available in real time. And then balance what's more important is somebody available versus how good of a match they are. An analogy is saying match.com, you're matching two parties, but if they're available for a date right now, it doesn't matter. They can go on a date a week from now. In Uber, you're matching two parties, but who that driver is doesn't really matter. Are they available right now to pick you up? That really, really matters. Well, what we were doing was trying to match a consumer and agent and then dispatching to those agents. And so where the, the data science problem was, was the, not only the matching, but let's say there were five agents in dispatch. If number one and number two were very similar, we'd want to go pretty quickly through that process because it didn't matter. But if number three and number four were very different, you might slow down before you sent messages to number three and four, balancing that dispatch with the matching. So that was one big piece that our data science team worked on. The second was we had a database of millions and millions of consumers that our CSR team would call to connect with and then connect with an agent. How do you know which consumer to call at any given moment? And what attributes of those consumers and what have we seen to know who should be the next most likely person that we connect with that would have the highest probability of closing? And the final piece was there are a lot of different actions that we could take once a consumer and an agent is matched to help get that deal closed. And so what are those actions we should take? Is it emailing? Is it texting? Is it calling? Who should we call? When should we call them? that will drive, drive conversion the most. So there was a tremendous amount of data in this business as well. And many things that we automated, many things that could be even more automated today. I can't wait to dig into each of these because they're, they're each interesting problems to think about. But just for, the, for everyone's context, sort of ask you in the form of question, is it, is it right to think of, of OpCity as effectively, you are going to go buy leads from platforms like Zillow, Realtor.com, whoever's capturing these basically online consumer demand searching for new homes. They then click that link, but you are the one that's effectively buying that lead as OpCity. And then you are going to, once you've qualified that consumer, refer the lead coming in from that website to a buying agent that's then going to help that consumer in their geography of interest go find the home that they want, which they've expressed interest in through this lead generation portal. Is that the right way to think about the flow? Yes, I would say that unlike Yodel, which was selling leads to people directly and, and nobody knew we existed, our biggest learning from that was you can sell a lead to somebody that doesn't mean it was a good experience for the consumer or mm. for the plumber who bought the lead. Yeah. And so we said, we are now going to both generate and be the buyer of those leads. And we are going to take the responsibility of getting them all the way to the finish line. 
Yeah. And so that was a huge learning from Yodel of you can't just sell people leads. You have to do more if you're going to truly create value. Yeah. You can see the through line there, the insight from five years or whatever, how many years that was in Yodel and then ultimately taking that top city, which also obviously worked out well. So let's go into problem one, which is the agent matching problem. I think it might be helpful context for people to understand what your learnings were in the Yodel experience of, hey, you do a bunch of data science, but what, what were those key learnings that came out on the relative importance of timeliness versus quality of match on the agents between agents and consumers? Timeliness was one of the top ones. So for yeah. instance, we saw even that when do you call a consumer? If you could get a hold of consumer while they were still on the portal, you had a much higher chance of converting. Which makes sense, right? If I'm playing around online looking for a house and I have time at that moment to look at a house and somebody calls me, I can talk about real estate. If they call me two hours later, I'm in the middle of doing something else or yeah. I may have found something else. And so it's too late. And so that's why our average time to call lead was four seconds. And we prioritize speed of contact over everything because getting a hold of someone when they are in the right mindset and just speaking to them at all. Yeah. And having that contact occur was the number one factor in conversion. Yeah. I'm hopping around a bit, but how do you know which consumer to call? If you're needing to call people very, very quickly, you probably have to have a bunch of effectively unutilized callers that are ready to start reaching out to these leads when they come in. So how do you think about balancing that unused capacity and the cost associated with that with the time? Because I imagine there's some point at which you can't just have unlimited capacity. So that capacity was doing other things when they weren't calling the brand new leads. Right. So let's say we had at any given moment, 500 CSRs. If we have no new leads, that's fine. They're calling our giant database of people who've raised their hand in the past to then connect them with an agent. But when a new lead comes up, it is the top thing in our entire lead queue that they will call. So the next person who is available will call it. Got it. Yes. If the only thing you did was call leads right when they came in, and if you didn't contact them, you never interacted with them again, it would be incredibly inefficient. But if you have a giant database of people who've raised their hands that we need to get a hold of, and just these new ones hop to the front of the database at all times, mm. people will be at full utilization. Understood. Okay, got it. So when connecting with an agent, they're somebody who has closed a deal that is very similar to what somebody's interacting with is, was the next most important. So my examples of something similar in a similar zip code. Right? Have you actually closed deals in the zip code at a similar price point? Everyone will say they love and can help you with a million dollar listing. Sure. But have you actually done it before? Yeah. Right? Just because you say you can do something doesn't mean you have and you will. Yeah. So have you actually closed at this price point? Another interesting one was languages spoken. In leads, I remember a lot of times people say, oh, this lead was no good. They only spoke Spanish. That's a great lead. You just don't happen to speak Spanish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so right. I think that, that, was another, that was another big lead learning from Yodel was people would complain about the leads, not because they weren't a good lead, but they were the wrong person to receive that lead. And I think in general, that is a big mistake of lead generation is if you buy leads, you take everything that's sent to you. But with us, we had such a big network, we could parse it out by who actually can get value from any specific situation. Yeah. So anyway, th those were a few examples of very important characteristics. Yeah. Makes sense. I mean, language is an obvious one, but I wonder if there are some non-obvious ones that almost expand to a fourth category of problem, which is how do we choose the right agent for a given, not agent, CSR within OpCity to bridge consumer and agent? Or is there any work done on that where you just don't treat them all the same way and try to be a little creative? Yes, yes. So we did try to get creative with these people speak slower and have Southern accents. These people, this exactly. person's from New York and we should connect them with other New Yorkers. We found there, were, there was some minor impact in that. Yeah. The number one factor that mattered, though, was their historic conversion and close rate. So we mm. just looked of, you've been here. This is the number of transfers you make. This is the amount of deals that actually close. We want to give you the best stuff because you have historically been better. That could be their confidence level. That could be tone. That could be just experience. So there were some other X factors here or there. But ultimately, is what have you done previously? is the number one indicator of what you're going to do in the future. Yeah. Okay. Makes sense. The reason I was, I was thinking about that is you see some of these new AI voice generators. And I, I mean, I was fooled by this and I had a call that came in from one of these spamming companies that tries to get your information. And I'm a technologist that you are as well. I don't typically get fooled by these things, but the accent was some guy who used my real name pronounced correctly from middle America. And it sounded so authentic calling from Bank of America that I literally <laughs> called and I was, Hey, and of course, as soon as you call, you reach 
some foreign accent and you're like, okay, I understand what this is now, yeah. but it, it does make you think, man, I wonder where the optimizations are that you don't think about that you can do with these accents or styles of speaking. And I'm sure you're one of the world's experts on that topic from the years of experience. Oh, you know, we talked about doing that where anyone can speak and then it could change and be a different voice through that. I, as I said, a great example of that was voicemails of mm. what got more calm. And that's a really easy, because it's really hard to control for that testing in real time. Because you don't even know who's, a, when you're making an outbound call, you don't necessarily know who's going to phone. Yeah, sure. Right. But on a voicemail, you can do lots and lots of testing. If you're, All right, we're going to leave a thousand voicemails today. Let's test a bunch of different voices, a bunch of different accents, a bunch of different calls to action, a bunch of different times that we leave the voicemails. Text messages is another example. So in the Yodel days, people picking up random phone numbers, you're saying 2005 wasn't that strange. Today, a lot of people... I don't care who calls them. If they don't know the number, they're not going to pick up. Now, it was different at Yodel because they're calling businesses and businesses will typically pick up numbers because they're trying to get new customers. In at OpCity, we were calling consumers who had inquired about property. So even if they inquired about property, they wouldn't answer a phone number there. Yeah, sure. And so text message became that much more important. And on text message, you could do many, many more quick testing and iteration of what do different what are different calls to action and how long should the text be and how much information should we give and so we were able to do lots and lots of quick iteration of text and you can do a lot of automation in texting as well you don't actually need humans to respond to these text messages and it's even faster yeah did you find so that business b2b and b2c were very different in that case yeah yeah it makes total sense did you find that over time the the correct way to engage may have changed in other words people initially might not have been as excited to engage in a web form, but over time, actually, if you sent them some, instead of calling, it actually might've been more successful to take a different route. And, and that the, the mix of success, not success across each different channel shifted as consumer understanding of technology changed, or was it relatively consistent throughout your experience? No, I was so, look, I've been trying to get up, communicate and get leads and information from consumers for almost 20 years now, right? <laughs> and so people thought about, I'll ask you this, would you put your name and cell phone number in a web form today. No. No, but you may have 10 years ago, right? Because yeah. you didn't realize, you know, what potentially could happen for them or maybe there wasn't as much spamming from it. Yeah. So yes, in the earlier days, capturing information in web forms or getting people to respond to cold calls or phone calls was much, much easier. Yeah. Today, so at, in the OpCity heyday, I would say text message was phenomenal. Even now you're getting many more spam texts yeah. And that's been a lot harder. And so we found, and this is getting to when I sold OpCityRealtor.com and I was at Realtor.com for three years, we could do a lot of testing and calls to action. So what used to work is inquire about this property, put in your information, stopped working because mm. I don't know where that's going to go. But if you said schedule a tour, right? That was a call uh. to action. People said, oh, I would schedule a tour. When would you like to schedule a tour? Tomorrow at 2 p.m. Excellent. I need your phone number and email Otherwise, to schedule hello. this tour. Yeah. How else are we going to get, are you going to go to the store? Right. And yeah. so then, then they would do that. Right. Uh, or text us, right. Instead of us texting you, here's the phone number. If you would like some information, you can text us on yeah. that information. Right. And people felt they were being proactive instead of somebody reaching out to them and they get so many text messages, maybe it would get buried in there instead of them, them sending it out. Right. Other things of, okay, we're going to send you this information. Please save this contact. So they know. So when we call them, it'll actually show up as a contact instead of a random phone number. Other things you can even work with the phone carrier. So when your number calls, it says who you are, right? So that yeah. people are willing to pick up their call if they want to talk to you. Yeah. So you need it. we needed to get a lot more creative to capture customer information or consumer information than we did in the earlier days when it's just, just fill out this form. Mm. What is the, this is a bit of an off the wall question. I do want to get back to what you're doing at OpCity, but you have an incredible consistency in how you've figured out these weird, I would, I would describe them as weird, hacky things that make a very big difference at scale. Is there some unifying or, or consistently relevant advice that you would give to people trying to do the same thing? Is it always measure what you're doing, always implement measurement before you go try to build a process or always be changing, always be testing? Or what is the advice you give in a more generic sense to people to do what you're doing? I, I would say build the infrastructure and culture within your company to do nonstop testing and make it really, really easy. It's a, what did it say? Sacred cows make the best burgers. Have you ever heard that? No. 
That's one of my favorite phases. It's there's no such thing as the sacred cow. There's nothing that's untouchable. And we should constantly be challenging the status quo. And that's a cultural thing that some people aren't very comfortable with. And it's okay to be wrong as long as you're getting a lot of data. So for instance, let's say I'm able to do tons of tests and I test 10 things and only five of them work, but I got five good answers. And you're much more measured and conservative and you hit, get a much higher hit rate right? Maybe you test three things and two things are right. So you hit 66%. I only hit 50%, but mm-hmm. I got five new pieces of information. You only got two. So you are not optimizing for the percentage of times you're right. You're optimizing for how quickly can you get an answer and how many answers can you get. Man. Well, it's, it's worked well for you over the years. I think more people have to do this stuff. I think it's just challenging to get the right testing infrastructure in place because it requires real investment of time and systems to be able to go do this. And also a culture of, hey, it's okay to get things wrong and systematically try new things over time rather than having this confidence that you're right from the beginning and then never changing. And then of course, you're never going to find the global maximum. I've never found an entrepreneur who's right all the time, right? I mean, you should have some intuition about your industry, yeah. but you should be very humble and believe you're wrong most of the time. So yeah. that you can just keep testing. And that's what I was saying about the sacred cows. You got to just constantly be getting new data points. And a way that you can test very well is having from day one an infrastructure data collection. And one of our company values was we use data to decide. We don't use our gut to decide. We capture data and we use that data in our decision making. Yeah. And that has to be a core tenant of your business. I want to add one more question on this tangent, which I think is an interesting one, which is totally agree with you, particularly in your types of businesses. But I think there's a counterpoint to be made that is sometimes PMs, I think, take a lot of hell these days because all they do is A-B test and just using that data can be limiting in what you're able to go achieve. And just basic intuition and ability can sometimes, the, the data can be a crutch for not having that. How would you respond to that that counterpoint? Look, it depends on the, the severity of the decision that's happening. Yeah. The, the best entrepreneurs as well get things right a high percentage of the time and have great intuition of what their customers need, but they are collecting data in other formats. So for instance, let's say we both have companies and I'm spending a week with my customer nonstop and you haven't talked to your customers in a month. The decisions that I'm making maybe by my intuition, I guess, but it's because I got a week of data that I collected from my customers. Right, right. And the decisions you're making maybe from your intuition, but you didn't have the data come at you. You didn't have the experience for that intuition. Yeah. So intuition is a catch-all for a lot of things. Yeah. And often the people who have the best intuition by far are because they've had the most, ex- I never appreciated experience until I had it. Yeah. I was listening to a program on the history of Walmart recently. Mm. And they talked about how Sam Walton spent more time in his competitors' stores than the owners of those stores. And he got to see the users of his competitors' stores and what they cared about and what they didn't in a way that his competitors didn't even know about their own business, let alone his business. So I don't think PMs spend enough time with the end user in general. I think they might try to think about A-B tests. Like you need to get data from multiple sources and the data is not just what's in a spreadsheet. Yeah, there's a lot of suing going in all directions with respect to generative AI models that are making images and art and videos by quote unquote stealing information from everything else. And if you parallel that into human experience, it's almost a complaint is you're upset that an artist has studied art for many years and looked at a lot of different things and then generated art. It's They didn't just live under a rock and not take from anything else a little bit like the AI models are, right? And it's the same thing here where you sort of say, look, the intuition is not just you were born with it. It's really just an aggregation of experiences that then you synthesize some insight that is data-driven. It's just not as not in dashboard through Tableau, right? Yes. Now, now I think the counter argument to that is there was a lot of work and study and time that came from that craft. And it wasn't, I I think in any patent law, it is how close is it to the original work? And so that, and that's the debate. And I think a lot of AI is, this is pretty much replicating work instead of using a portion of that work for your future work. Yeah. But yeah, no, look, I, I think that is a debate we have constantly as well. Your best PMs, your best founders have good intuition and get things right a very high percentage of the time. And they have that good intuition because of the other data they've absorbed in their life. And they have a very good feeling for what their consumer wants. I mean, look at Steve Jobs, his ability to understand what the consumer wanted was by far the best of anybody. Yeah. Right. But then you have this intuition of what you're going to do. You make it come into the real world in life 
And then you're able to collect a lot of data and make decisions based on that. Mm. So I think that intuition, it depends on what the life cycle is and where you are within a startup. In the earliest days of the startup, you don't have any data except for that other data that you collected the more traditional way. And so you have to make all the all this these intuitive decisions. But at Yodel, when I have 80 million calls transcribed a year, I could continue to keep going with my intuition. But now I have this treasure trove of data that no one else has. I should use it. And by the way, interpreting it, there may not be any data-driven way to interpret this information. And it has to be from my experience. Mm. But I should use the data that I have. I was just thinking back to your comments on making use of the data by leveraging some of the new ML tech coming out. Do you think it's the case that it's now going to be more challenging to build an early stage company because it's easier for incumbents to make more use of the data they sit on? Or as before, it was went through this long period of big data and collect everything. And that wasn't all that helpful because we didn't really have the systems to analyze it. And now we more do, particularly in these consumer conversation use cases. And I almost wonder if that is really just a gift to the incumbents that they can now make more use of this. And startups that are coming in are saying, wow, that actually made it more challenging for me to compete. I think it's the exact opposite. I think startups have a bigger advantage now than they've ever had. Think of what it used to be to start a company. You needed to pay for servers. Now everything's in the cloud and AWS. You needed to have different IT people and figure out your email and other things. Now all of that's figured out. Then you needed to have copywriters and other things. Now you don't need to pay for that anymore. There were so many things that you needed. You needed to raise money to just build infrastructure. All that infrastructure is becoming more and more automated and you could focus on your secret sauce. I mean, there's going to be multi-billion dollar companies with three to five people who started it because so many things can be automated through technology. Mm. On the other hand, there are these big companies and yes, they have access to data, but they move slow because they're bureaucratic. They don't know how to use their data properly. Maybe some of the best people don't want to work in these larger places because they can't make as big an impact. And it's easier for them to start companies than there ever has before. There are more companies being founded now than ever. I think fewer people could make a great company because you need less upfront capital and infrastructure to do it. Yeah. So I actually think the opposite. I think AI is going to propel a lot of these small companies. I think one of the things you struggle in my seat in the, the venture investing business is, well, if you can go do it by wrapping GPT-4 with some writing UI interface, Jasper was the famous one early on, why yep. can't anybody else go do that? And particularly, why can't an incumbent go do that with a big workflow and data advantage? And so I guess the question is, do you believe in the efficient markets hypothesis or not? I'm curious how, how you think through that piece of it. There's all these businesses out there that we haven't even thought of the use cases that will be able to take what's off the shelf and utilize it to their competitive advantage and build either a brand that other people can't overcome or build some integrated technology that other people can't overcome. I mean, this is the early days of the internet, right? There were lots and lots of startups that didn't make it, but there's a few who made it really big and are central to our lives. I see a lot of this ChatGPT as Microsoft Office. We all use it to make us much more effective than paper and other whatever we used before that. Yeah. It used to be on resumes. People put that they were proficient in Word and Excel yeah. and PowerPoint, <laughs> right? They, that's what people used to put on the resume. Yeah. Now it's a given that you are proficient in Excel and Word. Yeah. In fact, they're probably right? less likely to hire you if you, you, were, you put that on your resume. If, if, if you put that on your resume, it doesn't even make any sense anymore. But it yeah. did at one because people were not proficient in those tools. Right. And I think the AI tools of today will be like that, where people are going to have to learn to use them. They're going to have people who are great at writing commands and prompting different AI, but ultimately it will just be a tool that we use in all of our daily lives. Yeah. And to run interesting businesses, Yodel and OpCity, Realtor.com and Setpoint, which I'm bummed we only have a few minutes left. We didn't get to talk about because I know there's so much to unpack, but it's a business that is so deeply complex in a good way that I don't think I would do it justice in two minutes. <laughs> and so <laughs> you should save it for the next time. Yeah. I can give the high level overview if you're curious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do it. What gets me so excited about Setpoint is there's so much infrastructure that has been built to help the front end originators and consumers of all of these new products. But so many of these models are based on credit and access to capital. And there's this whole world of capital from large banks that lends to all these businesses and originators of of capital. And that whole world is very backwards. Nobody has really invested in the infrastructure, especially in asset-backed lending. And it's all in Excel, it's all in email, and we are building the infrastructure for that world. So I know what you're talking about, but I want to make sure everyone who's listening does as well. Oh, yes. <laughs> I was saying, let me, let me add a bit of context here. So basically what you're talking about is if you're starting a consumer lending business, you want to go lend, give a mortgage to somebody online, or you want to give them a buy now, pay later loan in the context of an e-commerce transaction, 
ultimately you are yep. originating a credit product, a loan, an asset that you need to fund in some way. Because if you're a technology company, you don't have a bunch of deposits from consumers, but banks do, financial institutions that take investments from other people. And you can set up various structures to fund the products that you are creating. And you guys are the ones that are going to sit between those two constituencies, basically. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Think about a large Carvana who provides auto loans or Open Door who's buying houses or SoFi who does consumer credit. Those organizations are not banks. Those originators do not have massive amounts of deposits. They need to work with a Goldman Sachs or a Credit Suisse or somebody else who has this capital. Right. And their whole capital markets world to access that capital, they're dropping a lot of technology to innovate in that area. And that's what we are doing. We are helping digitize these complex credit facilities. We are helping verify documents and really making trust much, much easier and getting everybody out of Excel and into a more tech-driven world. Right. I think oftentimes you see there's an act one, act two, act three type of structure in these, in these companies, especially of experienced entrepreneurs like yourself. Is there a bit of that here where you say, look, step one is just digitizing and automating a lot of the process that already exists. And then maybe there's a step two where you say, look, just the way that people raise big debt facilities to fund consumer origination, consumer originated loans, it just doesn't really make sense in this new world of tech enabled lending and the speed at which it has to happen. Is there an act two that you envision here where the world will fundamentally change because of the fact that you exist? Yes. Well, I think there is a lot of duplicative work. I'll use fix and flip housing as an example. The originator, the person who's doing the lending here is going to need a credit facility that it has somebody to verify the documents. They then may sell those loans to some aggregator who then needs to verify these documents. Mm. They then will securitize and, and, and have a, a securitization where somebody needs to verify the document. There's this chain where the same thing is being verified over and over and over again. You need a trusted source that puts their stamp and say, this is verified to make that capital flow much smoother and make that whole process much faster and much, much easier. Another product we have is called Portfolio Manager, which is optimizing across facility. So you're an originator and you have a bunch of options to get capital. How do you know which line to put it on that it's gonna have you look at the lowest cost of capital? or maybe the highest loan to value in LTV, or maybe there's something else you're optimizing for. All of this is done very, very manually within this variable error prone and isn't done properly today. And so by reducing the cost of capital for an originator, they can pass that on to the end consumer. And so credit can be cheaper for everybody when you have fewer middle people, fewer mistakes, greater trust, and real infrastructure. Interesting. It's like with roads, right? When you paved and you made highways, People yeah. could get things faster and it was better for everywhere. The credit system is there's horse and buggies and we're in dirt pads. And if these were super highways, yeah. then credit can flow easier and cheaper. Totally. Yeah. Which is obviously ultimately better for a consumer, but really anybody in the, in the ecosystem. Two questions and that'll let you go. One of which is where in your set of experiences, of course, you're coming from real estate. So there's a connection there, but where in your set of experiences are you pulling from that you think give you a unique insight or advantage in starting this business specifically? Are you taking some of these data-driven testing philosophies into set point? And if so, how, or maybe it's in other areas? I think a few things. One, when I sold up City to Realtor.com, I began doing a bunch of angel investing in prop tech. And I began being not only an investor, but an advisor and a board member to a number of companies. That gave me a huge vantage point to see lots and lots of stuff happening that's really innovative in real estate. One of the companies, I was the first investor on a board member, is called Homeward. I was personally providing credit facilities. So I got the firsthand look is what does it mean to be a lender in this space, to write these facilities. And what I realized was one of the bi biggest risks was not in consumer default or in home price fluctuation. It was between the seat and the keyboard. It was people were making manual errors. So you write these facilities and you, on paper, they look great. But in practice, they're not because everything is being done very, very manually. I got a firsthand look into that. We then, Homeward was our first customer, got to try this out in the real world. And thus, it worked very well for them, their infrastructure, and for others. And so I think a big thread between my companies, and I, I say this to every entrepreneur, you need a first customer that you intimately know and you're operationally embedded to be that sandbox to figure it out. But OpCity, our first customer, was my co-founder's father who was a car dealer. And we got to test lots of things within that car dealership to see if this business made any sense and got real feedback from somebody who cared to give it to us. My second company, OpCity, a good friend of mine had started a residential brokerage in Austin, Dallas. And this brokerage wasn't huge. There were 2% of the Austin, Dallas market, but they were buying over 40% of the online leads in the market. 
and had become a lead conversion machine. And I've been doing this for 15 years. So I walked in with 15 years worth of data with an actual brokerage that I could test things in before really going to market. At that point, I was, I was lending capital. We built it for their use case, knowing we wanted to scale it. So I see a lot of entrepreneurs with these ideas and they're like, let me build it and then go find someone to sell it to. The challenge is you may build the wrong thing just because you think it's needed doesn't mean anyone's going to actually pay for it. And two, just because you get it in somewhere doesn't mean that you have a customer vendor relationship. You need someone who's so integrated, they're going to be truly honest with you or you can tweak and figure things out while you're in. One thread be between the three companies, having your first customer be a true partner where you are very, very involved. And obviously, our office was in the brokerage, it was in Home City. Our first client, our office was their office. Our first client, my co-founder's father was the owner. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. This one, I'm a board member. So you got to be so intertwined with your, your first customer. Yeah, okay. Last question, which feels a bit of a cheater one, but I have to ask it. The theme of this podcast is, of course, applied machine learning. We've talked a bit about that in the context of set point. I can imagine doc verifications, summarization of terms, organization of documents. I know we talked about that in a different context in these big loan files, where do you see the application of this technology that's not come out? What gets you excited about? You look at what's not coming out. What do you view as a gift that you didn't expect that you think is now going to hopefully positively inflect the story for you? One example we talked about earlier was this set point GPT, right? These three, 400 page loan agreements, being able to, in one chat bot we, or chat box, we have this, ask any question and have the answer pop up. Because yeah. the person who negotiated this facility and the person on both the lending side and the originator side might not even be with the company anymore. Yeah. And so being able to pull out all of this critical information. So much of this whole world is about trust. And so having models that you trust to pull the information out to verify documents and calculate the borrowing base and being able to move funds around in a very automated way, in a tracked way, is unlike anything before. Because as I said, a lot of the risk and reason credit's more expensive is because of the errors between the seat and the keyboard. Mm. You double fund a property, that's a big deal. That's yeah. a lot of money. How do you reduce errors through automation? And I think we talked about this in the Yodel context. There are some things that humans are incredible at and machines are not there yet, but there's many things that machines are much better at humans. And that is doing the same thing over and over again and don't make mistakes. And yeah. so how do you break up the human job into the things that where there could be mistakes and you automate those and the things that you need some human intuition and you don't have the same risk involved. And right. so that's why I think a machine learning and automation is going to make not only the people more effective and efficient, but significantly reduce any of the errors that could be made. Yeah. I mean, look, I think we could have a whole one or two hour session on just within financial services and lending automations available, but We'll save it for another time. Ben, this was incredibly interesting. Thank you so much for doing this. And I hope to do it again soon. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And uh, anytime.